A reading from the Gospel of Mark. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. A reading from the epistle to the Hebrews. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the word of the Lord. Today's sermon title is, A Hard Heart Will Cost You Your Sanity and Your Soul. This is a message of hope. The last thing that Brother John read was that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and are saved. I'm going to read that passage from Mark chapter 3 one more time. Jesus is going into the synagogue. He's going into the church building. And as he entered the synagogue, a man was there with a, with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. Can you see them squinting with suspicion in their eyes? They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, the day of rest, so that they might accuse him. What were they thinking? Does that strike you as really weird? These guys are whack. Like, get this. There's this guy, he has a, a physical disability, his, his hand, it's probably his right hand, I imagine, and, and, it's, and it's withered and shriveled, it's useless to him as an employee, he can't perform his trade, he can't be productive in society by using his right hand to do work, right? So he's, he's disabled And they're watching Jesus to see if he's going to supernaturally enable this man and free him and give him rest from a lifetime of disability. And they're they're squinting and they're watching him so that they can accuse him. What are they thinking? These guys are insane. They're out of their minds, right? It's super obvious to us, and we're just reading a quick account of it, but it's extremely clear to us that these guys have lost their minds. God has come in human skin, in a a body of a man. He's become a man. He's come down to earth. Like, the God who made the universe has now entered the universe and become a part of it, in mercy and compassion for little ones like us who are in need, who are distressed, who need to be healed of sin, 
who need to be delivered of demons, who need to be healed of physical infirmities, and we all suffer from these things. And here's this man who typifies the, the suffering and the, the need. His hand is shriveled up, and he can't use it. And they're watching him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Can you see the man walking up to the front of the synagogue like this? And he said to them who were glaring at him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. Do you know who these guys are? They're Bible teachers. They had spent their lives reading, studying the Bible, the, which at the time was the, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, the, uh, you know, and especially the, the first five books of the Bible that are called the Law of Moses, or the Law for short, right? So this, these were the, many of the laws of their societies were just direct text from Scripture, the Ten Commandments and the other case laws and such, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, etc., right? So this is what they read, studied, and taught. So they were teachers, and this was their, uh, this was their subject matter. And Jesus is asking them a question about the Bible, about the law. And he's like, is it against the law on the day of rest? Remember uh, the commandment um, to that we should take a Sabbath of rest and do no work on it, right? Do they remember that? Yeah, of course. They probably taught on it many, on many Sabbaths. And so here they are on the day of rest, and they're all gathered to hear the Bible and to have different people stand up and read and teach the scriptures. And Jesus stands up, and he calls this guy forward, and he comes up, and they're glaring at him. And he asks him a kind of, I mean, it seems like a really insulting question. Is it against the law on the Sabbath, this day of rest, to do good? <laughs> no? Okay. Um, that's a pretty easy one. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life, to set people free and give them rest, and do good to them, and have mercy on the needy? Or, or, is it, or does the Bible say to just kill, kill people. What are they doing to him with their eyes? They've got murder in their eyes, and they can't even answer his question. They don't even go so far to say, Jesus, I know what you're thinking, but yes, the Bible does say it's, it's legal to do good and to heal. They don't even get there. They're just silent. What's wrong with these guys? Why are they so full of cruelty and hardness of heart? How did they get this way? Like they're in a really bad place. Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored. The first thing they should have been thinking is that Jesus is living out, he's reenacting something that Moses went through in the Law of Moses, the Book of Moses. They had taught this story many times. They'd taught how before God delivered the people out of their slavery in Egypt, he called Moses. And Moses is like, I can't go up against Pharaoh. I don't know how to talk. You know, was he well-educated? Yes, he was one of the most well-educated men in the world. Um, was he a little shy? Yeah. Um, was he, did he, did he kind of chicken out at this calling? Yeah. And God said, okay, I'll have your brother Aaron talk for you. He'll do the talking, you know. And, uh, and I'm going to give you some miracles to prove that I have called and ordained you to go to Pharaoh and to call him, to command him to set my people free, to let my people go. And he said, Moses, throw down your staff. And he threw down his staff and it became a snake, right? Kind of, 
you think of a snake as like the snake in the garden, like Satan himself. And then he tells Moses, okay, pick it up. Imagine picking up like some kind of deadly poisonous snake. And well, he does it. He reaches down and he picks it up and it turns back into his staff in his hand. You know, saying that the Lord has authority over demons. The Lord has authority over the devil and his people and all the unrighteous kingdoms, Pharaoh, right? So that's a symbol of God's authority over Pharaoh that he just gave Moses, this miracle to perform right in front of Moses. The other thing he said to Moses was, stick your hand in your coat. So he opens up his cloak and he sticks his hand in. He says, take it out. He takes it out and it's pale and white. His skin is dead perhaps rotting. It's as, it's as white as a piece of paper. There's no life left in his hand. His hand is dead. And he says, put your hand back in your cloak. You put it back in. These guys that are glaring at Jesus had taught this to the people many times. They know this story. They know this one. They know what happens next. God said to Moses, stretch out your hand. And he pulled it back out, and his hand was restored, strong, alive. The skin's back on. It's a, it's a normal color, and, and he could use his hand again. It's saying that, that it's not Moses' right hand, is his hand of power that's going to deliver the people from Egypt. It's saying, you are actually totally impotent, and, and your hand is weak, and, but my hand is strong to save. I will do this. I have this authority. Now go in my name, right? That's what these Bible teachers, Bible teachers should have been thinking. And, and they got it. They got that Jesus is saying, I'm God and I have authority and I have power in my right hand to take a, a, a dead man, a powerless man, and make him alive and heal him, to give him life Give him rest on the day of rest. And these guys, they, they know it all, but they're so hard of heart. How did it get so bad? How could anybody be that hard of heart? How did they get that way? How do we become hard of heart? One, are you descended from Adam? yes, then you have Adam's sin in you. You're dead to God and you were born in hardness to God and being dead toward him. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, being alienated from the life of God. Listen to this, the words of Ephesians as a description, both of the men in the synagogue glaring at Jesus and perhaps sometimes of ourselves. Paul says, I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Their thinking had, like, it's like they were very smart, but their brains had become useless to them. They didn't see what was right in front of them. They, they couldn't perceive. God's come down and he's come to heal and to bless, to speak words of, of hope and, and life and healing. And, and, and they, couldn't, they couldn't receive it. Their, their thinking didn't work anymore because of their hardness of heart. That's, that's how they got so bad. They weren't just born that way like all of us, but they had become so calloused to when they heard the word of God, they resisted God so much that their thinking became unproductive and their, their brains didn't work anymore. They could, they could do the math problem. They could, they could teach the stories, but they couldn't figure things out anymore. They didn't, it didn't make sense to them anymore and they, couldn't, they didn't get reality. They are darkened in their understanding, says Ephesians 4. They're alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. How did these guys get so ignorant? 
They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Has your heart become a little bit hardened? Have you noticed your heart becoming calloused to the Lord? Do you hear the scriptures? And instead of responding in faith, has your heart become a little calloused? They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught as the truth is in Jesus, they saw Jesus right in front of them. He's the truth. He's like the definition of truth. All of the reality in the world came when at the beginning of creation, he spoke things into existence, created the world and every star and planet, designed the, the laws of physics, the law of gravity, the laws of the universe, and spoke into, the wor- spoke into his prophets, his words, his righteous commandments and decrees. He gave his law to us. He gave us this book. Jesus is where truth comes from. Reality, come, reality is centered all around him. And here these guys are alienated from the life of God. They've become ignorant. Their thinking has become a waste of time. It's a waste of time for them to try to think because it doesn't work. Their, their thinking is futile. They're, they're calloused, and it's all because of their hardness of hearts. repeatedly refusing God's grace to escape temptation makes your heart hard. The hard heart keeps sinning. The hard heart can't see reality. The hard heart, when Jesus is right in front of us, we don't, we don't get him. We don't feel like worshiping. We don't feel like participating in the body of Christ. We don't feel like opening the covers of our Bible and, and reading it. It's just, we're just not into that. The hard heart is always resisting the Holy Spirit. Listen to, in Mark 16, Jesus' own disciples. And put yourself in their shoes. Mark 16, verse 9, Jesus had come to earth, been crucified for, for them, for their sins, that he might give them his righteousness and take their sin, all of it, upon himself. And, and he's just died, and he's just risen from the dead. Mark 16, 9. When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they wiped the tears from their face and they went out and they began to preach the gospel powerfully and plant churches everywhere they went. Nope, I misread that. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Ooh. Do you think they were a little hard of heart? Have you read the Bible and thought, it's a little too much for me? That might be a sign that you've become a little bit hard of heart. Verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. And then their eyes were opened and they believed and they celebrated and they shared a communion meal and they went out and they powerfully preached the word of God and healed the sick and drove out demons and discipled everybody they could. Uh. 
No, no. No, um, it says, and they went back and told the rest, but they didn't believe them. Oh, man. Oh, they really botched that one. Do you think they'd become a little calloused, a little hard of heart? God wasn't meeting their expectations. Jesus didn't do what he thought they'd do. Um, they were suffering. They were disappointed in God. And they looks like they decided this Jesus wasn't working out for them. They'd given up. And because of that, because they, their hearts were hardened, they couldn't believe. Verse 14, afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. Can you see it? They're in this room. They're, they're around the table. They're all reclining there at the table. They're eating. They're having a meal together. Boom. Jesus walks through the door, walks through the wall, or, or just, just becomes present among them somehow. And, and what does he say to them? He says to them loving words. Here's what he said. He rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Ouch, that hurts, Jesus. I believe that some of us here today have become calloused and that Jesus would lovingly rebuke us and enable us to see him and have the faith that softens the heart and takes away the layers of unbelief and the layers of resistance and the habit of sinning and sinning and sinning without ever repenting. Repeatedly refusing God's grace to escape temptation. Repeatedly refusing God's grace to have faith and believe in Him makes your heart hard. The hard heart keeps sinning. If your heart is hard toward God, you will become blind to Him and he will turn you over to the lusts of your heart. That's terrible. Think about the guys in the synagogue. They're glaring at Jesus. They're, it's like they're dumb. They don't get it. Their hearts are hard, and therefore, they became... They, these guys were, were lovers of themselves. They wore really impressive clothes. The, the law of God said, make these little tassels on your garments as reminders of something God had done for the people. And, and so they made tassels on their clothes, but they made theirs big and long and flowy. It was like they were wearing like the nicest tuxedos that you could possibly get when they're like just going out to like a business casual meeting. This is what these guys did for themselves. They really loved themselves and they dressed not to look well or to dress professionally. They dressed to get attention. They loved attention. They ate it up. It was their diet. They wanted everybody to think, man, these guys look good. And they wanted everybody to want to be like them. They didn't want everybody to look at them and want to be like God. They were drawing attention away from God, even as they taught the Bible, and they were drawing attention to themselves. What did John the Baptist say? How did, how did Jesus describe John the Baptist? He said, there's, there's nobody greater among humans than John the Baptist. Like, what a, what a, what a powerful and, and special prophet. What an extraordinary job he had. And Jesus identified him that way. And what did John the Baptist say of himself when people are like, hey, people are following Jesus. Your disciples that you've been discipling, they're, they're leaving you and they're following Jesus. And it's like, <laughs> he must become greater. I must become less. What are these guys saying as they're glaring at Jesus in the temple, in the synagogue? They're, they're mad that he's getting the attention. They're mad that God's getting the attention because they wanted it. 
and they're jealous. Ever felt deflated that you were getting less attention and that God was getting more attention? These guys loved themselves. They loved their reputations. They loved their money. They loved getting their money. They loved spending their money. They loved using it to show off. When they, when they gave an offering, you know, they had a, they had a box at the, at the temple and people would come up and give their offerings. Um, we pass around a little bag and most of us kind of look the other way when somebody else gives. That's a good thing. But their culture was a little bit different. They came up and how did they come up to the box? They strutted. <laughs> and they got out their wallet. And they didn't get out their, their little money clip. They got out their big wallet. And they opened it like this and they took out the big dollars. Can you, can you see them doing something like that? These guys are out of their minds. Sometimes we're a little bit like that. Sometimes we're resisting the Spirit. We're rebellious against the Lord and against those that He sent to minister the gospel to us, those who He sent to disciple us. Sometimes we, we read the Bible or don't. We read it and it's just not for me. It's, it's an old book. I don't think this one applies to me. Or, Well, you know, someday I'll go to heaven. I won't need this anymore. I'll, I'll have it all made and and we become calloused, and we become repeat offenders, and we, we sin the same way, and we don't even repent. We become like these guys there in the synagogue that day. Today, if you hear his voice, examine your heart and see if you've become maybe a little callous in one area of your life, maybe a little unbelieving. Maybe your heart has become hardened, and it needs to be softened. The opposite of a hard heart is a soft heart. The opposite of hard-heartedness is being willing to obey God. That takes faith. Jesus said in John chapter 7, my teaching isn't mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So Jesus just said, if you have doubts about the Christian faith, but if you're willing to humble yourself a little bit and, and set your doubts right here and take a step over here, if you're willing to do what God wants you to do, to step out in faith that maybe God can cleanse you of your sin, maybe God is who he said he is, maybe he can empower you to, to love him, maybe he can do that in you for which he died for you, maybe, he's, maybe his right hand is powerful enough to do that on your behalf to do what you can't do, to, to make you Christ-like. If you're willing to do that, your mind will be supernaturally opened and you'll see things about Jesus, you'll see things about the Christian faith that you never could have before. You'll, you'll get it in a way that these guys who are smart, they were educated, they were educated in the Bible. In fact, they were the most educated in the Bible people. I mean, like they, they read it more than like anybody else on the planet. And, and they were totally unable to, to have God live in them. They were like aliens from another planet to the life of God because of their hardness of heart. The opposite of hard-heartedness is being willing to obey God. When Jesus said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. A couple of verses down, the people responded to him in John 7, You have a demon! <laughs> what? 
No, he didn't. They did. They were out of their minds. Jesus is teaching them blessed and precious words. There's grace falling off his lips like honey. His words were sweet and a delight. And, and they heard him say, if anyone's willing to do God's will, he'll know that I am God in the flesh, that I am God come down, that I am the messenger of Yahweh, and I'm here. And I'm here for you to recognize me when you look at my face. And they looked at him, and they're like, you have a demon! <laughs> they likewise had hard hearts, and it caused them to lose their sanity. They couldn't see what was right in front of them. They couldn't see who was right in front of them. The opposite of hard-heartedness, of which we are all sometimes guilty, is willingness to obey God. And that takes faith. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. If you're not a part of a church, if you're not reading the scripture, if you're if when the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit, you won't, you got your walls up, then the word of Christ is coming to you and you're not, you're not taking it in because you've got layers of callus over your heart. Have you ever had a pretty painful callus on your foot? You ever gone to the podiatrist and they take this little, uh, little fruit peeler thing and they scrape layers off? I, I, my patients always tell me about this. They, they describe the instrument in great detail. Um, you have to have a doctor take these layers of callus off you. What, do you, what, do, what happens when, when Jesus, the great physician, takes in his patient, you or me, and he takes us to the operating table as the word of God is coming into our ears, and he, and he does open-heart surgery like a master cardiothoracic surgeon. And he opens up the sternum and he, sternum and he looks in at the heart and, and it's a rock. It's a petrified rock. Has your heart become like that toward God when he speaks to you? Are you unwilling to have faith? Are you unwilling to repent? That's why you don't perceive God. The scripture says that he will take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. You may find that your heart has become so rock hard that you're just dead lying there on the operating table. There was no life in you before the surgeon opened you up. This is a message of hope. All of us are susceptible to these things. All of us were born from Adam. We are, every one of us, genetically descended from Adam and Eve, and we genetically and spiritually have in our spiritual DNA Adam's sin, Adam's hard-hearted rebellion against God, who was right there in the garden with him. And Adam was perfect. And, and he's like, nope, I'm going to decide for myself what's good and evil. Eve, give me that. None of us are any better than that. That's a problem. And there's mercy here. There's mercy here at this cross. But it takes faith. It takes willingness to obey God. You have to believe that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You have to believe that God wants to do you good God wants to do you good. You have to believe that God wants to do you good. And you have to believe that he's able to. God is able to do you good. God is able to rescue you from serial sinning and serial unbelief. What do they call serial killers, serial killers? It's because they eat a lot of cereal? No. What does serial mean? It means there's a series. There's a, they, they take a life, and they take another life, they take another life, they take another life. Number one, two, three, four, it's a series. They're serial killers. We are serial offenders, are we? Do you feel like you have this sin in your life, and, and you've just done it once, 
and again and again in a long row? Are you a serial offender? That's who Jesus came to save. That's whom Jesus came to die for. That's whom he came to take off his robes of righteousness and put them on your naked and shameful body with, with nothing good, morally pure about you to clothe yourself. You, you're desperate for somebody to come and clothe you and only he can and he will. Have faith that he desires to do this for you and that he's able to fully cleanse you of past sins day after day after day after day. He is willing and able and ready to do so. You must cry out to him in faith. God's grace comes to us through three ways. The word of God, the Bible, the church, and the Holy Spirit himself. You're not going to find the grace of God anywhere else. God speaks to us through people who are his body. Jesus is the head. His people are the body. We're members of Christ and members of one another. You have to be connected to the church. It's, it's the only body of Christ. You have to be in it. This is why church attendance is not just helpful for your spiritual growth, it's necessary for you to know God. The Holy Spirit speaks to us supernaturally, His Spirit testifying to our spirit. That's another way we receive the grace of God, another way we hear the word of Christ. And as He speaks to us, a main thing that He does is bring back to our memories Scripture that we have memorized. How much scripture do you have memorized? Any? Some? How much time do you have? How are you using your time? If you're, if you're not going to church, then you're not connected to the head and the body and you're not really a member of the body of Christ. If you're not, if you're not like really a, a member of a church, not just going and sitting there, that doesn't do you any good. But this, the church isn't a building. It's the people of God who are real sinners, really crying out for grace over and over again and finding it and continually being refreshed and cleansed of every spot, sin, wrinkle, blemish, you have to be connected to this body. Otherwise, you're cutting yourself off from the life of God. You have to be regularly, like daily, throughout the day, opening your Bible and reading it, putting it on your cell phone or your MP3 player if you have one of those and playing the scripture, taking it in through your ears, reading it with your eyes, read it out loud, hear it in the Sunday messages, hear it on other messages through the week, listen to other preachers online. You have to be taking in the Word of God. And if you're a Christian, you should take in a lot of the Word of God. When Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, and he was so hungry and faint that he was dizzy uh, yesterday, um, a couple of brothers and I ran a race, and one of them told me he had fasted the day before, and halfway through the race, I asked him, how you doing? And he said, I'm dizzy. He said, it was probably a mistake to fast yesterday. Jesus had been fasting for multiple weeks. He, his body would have been very weak and dizzy. Um, I don't know if he hallucinated, you know, but, um, but there are all these rocks lying around that we're about the same shape and size of a loaf of bread, maybe. And Satan comes to him to tempt him. And he says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Can you almost see Jesus being tempted to look at them and be like, whoa, bread. <laughs> no, that's not what he did. He wasn't deceived, like we often are as our hearts become callous and hard to the Lord. 
and as we don't take the grace of God to escape temptations like these. Instead, Jesus said that the word of God is the bread that he needs, right? He said, food isn't my main need here. Bread isn't my main need here. The main thing I need to be eating is the Bible. If you're not taking in a lot of scripture, if that isn't your lifestyle, there's hope. Start today, right? This isn't a message of condemnation. This is a message of hope. Hope for the calloused and hardened of heart, which is often, I would suggest, us, right? Even Christians. If you're not taking in a steady diet of a lot of scripture, that's a problem because you are cutting yourself off from the life of God. And then when the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit with that mysterious voice that we all have heard, and he, go, he comes to you to bring back to your remembrance everything that he's said to you, everything that you've read in the sure and true and pure word of God, there's, there's nothing there in your memory. There, there are no memorized scriptures. I get way more out of the Bible when I'm not reading the Bible than when I am. When I read the Bible, it's good. Um, you know, we need to be reading a lot of scripture and taking a lot in. But the times when the Holy Spirit helps me and causes me to like get it and understand Bible verses, that happens way more when there's no Bible in front of me, when there's no CD playing in my car, when I'm just remembering a verse, when I'm in traffic and somebody cuts me off and then somebody else is tailgating and, and, and I immediately remember as my anger is rising up in me and I'm thinking, this is going to lose me five seconds, you know. And my first thought is often, the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Hundreds of times he's brought that verse to my memory. There are, there are hundreds of verses that he's brought back to my memory dozens and hundreds of times. And that's, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the word of Christ coming to you. So you need to be, you need to have a lifestyle of reading a lot of Bible. You don't have to be a fast reader. You don't have to be a reader who got high marks of reading comprehension. You just got to be willing to read it and then make it happen. Whatever it takes, make it happen. And then be willing to do it. And that's the hard part. And if you don't do that, you can read it all day like those men in the synagogue. And you can be a teacher of it. And, and you've done the work of reading it. And you're there, in the, you're there in the building, but you're not a member of Christ's body. You'll be alienated from the life of God and, and your heart will be calloused and hard. God's grace comes to us in three ways, through the word, the church, and the spirit. You're not going to find the grace of God elsewhere. Are you taking advantage of these three delivery systems of God's grace? Are you reading a lot of scripture? Are you regularly showing that you're a part of a healthy local church by, by being present? Um, and I would suggest that means more than coming to a meeting a week. Um, but I think that's very important to come to that meeting a week. Come to the morning Sunday school. If you can, come. Some people can't. Your health might not allow it. Um, maybe you have a bad day. No problem. This is where the sinners are welcomed and where there's grace. Have, have, you, have you missed a lot of church for years or your whole life? I used, to, I used to go to church every other week and, you know, you want to know why? I'd stay up late baking a pie on Saturday night. I'd have friends over. I'd wake up and I'd be like, oof, yeah, all right, snooze. But I, I didn't snooze it, I'd turn it off and then and wake up at 10 and be like, well, it's a half hour drive to church. I'll just have a quiet time. And I usually didn't. That was my lifestyle. I used to be one of the most hard-hearted Christians you've ever met. I had a reputation for it. Um, when I started attending this fellowship, this congregation, um, I quickly developed a reputation of somebody who was full of unbelief. Like I was like supernaturally anointed 
like there was this spiritual warfare. I had welcomed demons of unbelief into to, to hang out with my spirit and to, to speak to my spirit. And when people, when I read the Bible, I would think to myself, mm, I don't know, that's a little too much for me. I don't know if that's what it means or I just can't get there. You know, maybe I'll have faith in that someday. Or when the when, uh, guy who's discipling me would uh, talk to me in every one of our conversations, I can still remember, like, he would say things to me. It was Greg Weiss, and, and every paragraph of things that he said to me, I'd be thinking, no, I doubt it. Like, I, it was like this feeling inside of me. Doubt was living in me. Why was I so hard of heart? Do you think maybe I was a little bit unwilling to obey? Do you think maybe I had a lot of sin in my life that I was hanging on to? Do you think I'd forgotten how to repent? I hadn't forgotten how to sin, but that wasn't the main problem because we are a church of sinners. We're a church of serial repeat offenders, and yet we still belong here with him. Listen to Martin Luther's words to his friend Spalatin, who had become, uh, he'd fallen into a great depression over his sin. He wrote him a letter. He said, do not let your sin stick in your mind, but get rid of it. Quit your despondency, which is a far greater sin. It must surely be that heretofore you have only been a trifling sinner, conscious of only paltry and insignificant faults and frailties. Imagine him, you know, somebody who says they don't smoke or drink or they don't curse or something. That's their idea of what sin is. Like, that's the most shallow description of sin I've ever heard in my life. God wants your heart and your soul. He doesn't want you to not smoke a cigarette. That's great if you're not addicted to whatever. That's great if if you don't get drunk all the time, right? But you drink a glass of wine or you smoke a cigarette or you, you, you say the S word, like, give me a break. That's what Martin Luther is saying to this guy. He's like, surely, you're, it must surely be that heretofore you have only been a trifling sinner, conscious only of paltry and insignificant faults and frailties. Therefore, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. <laughs> when an egg is hard-boiled, there's no, you're not going to crack it open and scramble it. You're not going to poach it. You're not going to fry it over easy. Like, it's hard-boiled. There's no going back. It's done. You must by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us, as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid from imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities, yea, from the very greatest and most shocking sins. You want to be a painted sinner, and accordingly expect to have in Christ a painted Savior. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior, and you are a real sinner. I have embraced this. My, my daily prayer goes something like this. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's a trustworthy saying. You should memorize that. That's the gospel in one sentence. If you haven't accepted that gospel, you've accepted a false gospel and you're going to hell And I don't care how good you look or how well you dress or what your reputation is like or whether you never curse, you don't smoke a cigarette. And God doesn't care about stupid superficial things. He knows who you are. And you, like me, 
are a real and great and hard-boiled dyed in the world, no going back, very great and grievous sinner. And this is where sinners gather to find real salvation, real salvation from ourselves, real grace, grace that saves. This is the gospel we've embraced, and there is no other. This is a message of hope, hope for the calloused, hope for the hard-hearted. There are four doors in front of you. There's the door of temptation. There's the door of the word, the door of the church, and the door of the Holy Spirit. If you're rejecting the Spirit, if you're rejecting the Bible, or or not reading it, if you're rejecting the church, saying, I don't need to be a part of a church, I'm gonna be a Christian by myself. No, you're not. Then sooner or later, you will open the door of temptation and walk through it. Do Christians sin? Yes. Do Christians sin a lot? Yes. Does the proverb say that the righteous man falls seven times? That's like the total number in the Bible, like all of the times, and then gets back up? Yeah, that's the definition of a righteous man or woman. You fall and you fall and you fall, but you go through this very gospel every day. And every day, you're back on your feet, You don't give in to the great sin of despondency. God can't save me. I've sinned too many times. I'm a serial offender. No, you can. (laughs) The only people he saves are real great serial offenders. Me, hopefully you. Receive the grace of God to escape from temptation today. Receive the grace of God to escape from unbelief today, every day, and live by faith in the promise that Jesus, who went before us, is able to lead us through temptation and save us from our sins and soften our hearts. The reason we can respond in faith is because he has already opened our ears to hear his voice. He's already raised us from the dead. He had us on that operating table. He cut open the sternum and he took out this petrified rock, chucked that, and he put inside us a heart of flesh. And God who spoke into existence everything that exists, that's ever existed, God who who breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living being, God would breathe into you and make you a living person, a living spirit. God's spirit is pictured as his breath and he comes into us and his spirit lives with our spirit and God is most pleased to have you as his child and to live with, in, through you The call of the Christian is first be received by God. And then, once that's done, then work out your salvation and quit the hardness of heart. Quit the sinning. The reason we can respond in faith is because he has already opened our ears to hear his voice and accomplish for us what we never could have done. God has called us then, having saved us once, to continue to save us from our ongoing sins. He's called us to die to ourselves, to be crucified with Christ who died for us, and to now live a life in the body where Christ is living through you, and you're welcoming him when you hear his voice. You're not hardening your heart. You're living a new lifestyle because you've been made a new person. Christ lives through you. Don't resist him. Hebrews 10 that John read earlier says that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed like those in the synagogue. We are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And you say, well, how can I believe in something I haven't seen? Well, if you're willing to obey God, he will supernaturally open your mind to perceive unseen things. And you will see God. What does it say of the pure in heart? Aren't they the ones that see God? Yeah, that's how you see supernatural, invisible things that are right in front of your face. Otherwise, you're going to miss all the signs. Do not persist in this sin. I said this is a message of hope. So, to those of us who, you hear it ring, you pick it up, you see God calling. You look at it, you get another layer of callus over your heart, and you let it go to voicemail. And then, and then you don't listen to the voicemail, you just swipe to delete. Is that you today? Is that what you've been doing? If you're a Christian who's become calloused, This is what the Word of God says to you today. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us so that you are empowered to do what he says and you are able, Christian, to do what he says. the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to their Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's fear of condemnation. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's room for everyone who comes to him in faith. There's room for you. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Again, once and for all, and continually cleansing us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously Along also, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That means God's hand-picked ones. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect now? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it you? Is it your friends or your family? Who's going to condemn you now? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you feel like you're suffering a little? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because this is God's disposition towards you, because he's looking at you, and these words are what he's he's saying to you, you have power to follow him in freedom of faith and willingness and he will enable you to obey and to stand back up when you fall on your face. But you've got to be willing to say, yeah, I'm a great sinner, and I'm greatly in need of your grace. Have mercy on me again. Just in your heart, raise your hand to the Lord again quickly every time you sin. And he will raise you up like he raised Christ up. And at the last day, He won't leave you behind. He will raise you up immortal and incorruptible 
and you will be with him and see his face forever. And this is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we have often refused your grace to escape from temptation. And we had often developed a callus over our heart. Sometimes it was a thin callus. Sometimes it was a thick one. And we know that you're the physician that scrapes off the callus, leaving tender flesh, softening our hearts. You took out our heart of stone. You put in us a heart of flesh that beat with life and you breathed in us your breath, your very spirit. And now that you live in us, O Father, we cry out to you for mercy and grace that you'd empower us to continually crucify our sinful desires which war against our soul. And all of our hope is in you and all eyes are fixed on you now to watch you do what only you can do. Open our eyes to see reality. Open our hearts to be willing to obey you. Give us grace to go through the doors of the scriptures, the church, and hear your spirit's voice without hardening our hearts that we might not go through the door of temptation and remain there unwilling to repent and lose our sanity and lose our soul. Oh, Father, thank you for taking that death that we were destined to take. You took it for us. And we know that we who have believed in you will be held in your hands by your own powerful right hand and that you are able to both keep us from falling and to lift us up when we fall and to cause us to walk in repentance and newness of life. And so it is for this we pray, and we welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you to have your way. Do whatever you please with us. Have whatever you want. Money, time, dreams, relationships, heart, soul, we give ourselves to you because you've given yourself to us first. And we love you. We love you because you loved us first. Thank you that you will not stop loving us. Even when we are faithless, you will be faithful. And this is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.